Hey there, creatives. Thanks so much for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I am really excited to bring this next series um, to the show. It's going to be a special series dedicated to speaking with different uh, people, different therapists uh, involved in the Expressive Therapy Summit. If you've never heard of the Expressive Therapy Summit, it is an intermodal um, international conference uh, that really is dedicated to experiential learning and um, brings together all of the different disciplines in the world of therapy. There are social workers, there's art therapists, dance therapists, music therapists, play therapists, any kind of therapist really imaginable, and everybody sharing their experiential knowledge and hands-on learning um, activities. And it's a really wonderful event. And usually it's four days um, in the fall in New York City. And there is an LA component, which happens in the spring. Um, in this fall, I am interviewing probably, I would say eight to 10 people um, that are either directly involved in the summit or are going to be presenting on their uh, topic of um, expertise. And um, we'll be learning about their clinical practices um, and what they'll be teaching at the event. And so you'll get kind of a snapshot and hopefully in each conversation that we have, um, the, the key takeaways will relate to the work of creating something out of nothing, which is kind of the object of um, bringing your practice to life or creating that therapeutic tool, writing a book, whatever it is that as a therapist you're passionate about and want to bring to life. And that's really the focus of the Creative Psychotherapist podcast show. Um, in the first episode, I am interviewing Barry Cohen, who is the summit leader. And um, Barry's also an art therapist and a former art therapy educator. He also is the creator of the Diagnostic Drawing Series, which is uh, an art therapy assessment tool. Um, and in our conversation, we'll be talking about how the summit came to be. And you'll also hear a little bit about um, some of the roles that I've played um, over the years because I've been involved in the summit um, since the beginning. And it's something that I'm really passionate about and love. And I think part of being involved in the summit really allowed me to move in the direction that I'm in currently. I don't know if I would be here um, at this point without having participated in the summit and developing it and bringing it to life, sharing it with other people. I was very involved as the social media marketing person uh, for the event for many, many years until um, Laura Bader took over that a couple of years ago for me because I just got too busy with my practice. 
but I'm hoping that you're going to really enjoy the conversations uh, that we have. And um, so, yeah, so this is going to be the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit special series. Let us know what you think. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice-building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. I am very excited to welcome my next guest. Her name is April Duncan. She is a licensed clinical social worker and a registered play therapist. She obtained her bachelor's in arts and science from the University of Missouri, Columbia in 2006 and her master's of social work from St. Louis University in 2012. And she is currently working towards her doctorate of social work from the University of Southern California. She has a private practice in St. Louis and is the co-owner of St. Louis Play Therapy Institute, which provides play therapy training for educational and mental health professionals. Mrs. Duncan's current focus is on national and local workshops with educators and mental health professionals on the use of play therapy in the Black community to address the rising rates of suicide amongst Black youth due to racial trauma. Most recently, Ms. Duncan founded BMH Connect, which stands for Black Mental Health, a for-profit organization focusing on the use of play therapy to address suicide and racial trauma in Black youth. Welcome to the show, April. So glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So your uh, this episode is part of the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit special series for the show. And you're going to be um, presenting at the summit. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be teaching, um, the trainings that you're going to be teaching at the event this year? Yeah, so um, there's two um, workshops that I will be involved in. One of them is a panel discussion. It's really around um, COVID-19 and how we've had to adjust as expressive um, arts mental health practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, but then also um, the extra element of um, the racial injustice that we're seeing and, and dealing with at this time. So I'll be with some amazing people. You, I know you interviewed Kendra in another episode. She's amazing. I love her energy. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. So, so bright and just passionate, really contagious. Yeah. So she's going to kind of take the lead on the panel. Um, we've etched out like a little hour for me to kind of talk a little bit more about um, racial injustice and what's that looks like, what that looks like in the black 
Black community and how us as uh, mental health pr um, practitioners can be aware of how we can address the stigma of mental health treatment in this community due to mm. um, the mistrust and the, the history of uh, brutalization that's happened in our community. Um, yeah. Then kind of spurring off of that, I'll also be doing a four hour workshop on using play therapy to address those issues that you spoke about in my bio, the racial trauma and suicide in Black youth because researchers are showing there is a connection. Um, and my goal is to find a way to help caregivers provide Black children the coping skills and the connections that they need to be able to process these things that are happening to them. Mm, that's awesome. Wonderful. So in terms of like, if we were to start off talking about how you've had to adapt your practice as a play therapist during these times, which um, I'm not a play therapist, but I had been working on um, obtaining the play therapy credential and I've done a lot of hours and supervision and I have a play room in my office. It's just for play for um some of the younger kids that I work with. And obviously, if you've done play therapy, it is highly interactive. I, like our whole bodies are moving in the space. Um, we're dancing. We might be just, it, it's in a, a very embodied approach to treatment versus talk therapy, which obviously translates easily across the screen, how are you navigating it from a play-based approach um, using the teletherapy model? Yeah, so definitely went into this understanding that the kids were the experts and they're the ones that use technology. Um, I still don't know how many Zoom webinars I've done and I still have issues like sharing my screen or whichever, like this is, this is what they do. And kids really love to be able to be the expert and be able to teach you something. So I really took it from the standpoint of, hey, I don't know what to do. I don't, we usually have our room and you usually do come and I have some games, but what are you doing when you're playing on your iPad all day? Or what are you playing with whenever you're stuck in your room all day and your parents can't blast you out of there? And so whether it was I've learned TikTok dances, um, YouTube has been my best friend, whether we've done yoga or learning some dances together, because like you said, we do use our full body and kids need to be up and moving and all that stuff. Talking a lot about how we can use that as coping skills to deal with what we're all dealing with, the anxiety, the annoyance, the sadness, the disconnection from our friends and family. Um, but also, <laughs> For my kids, like eight to 12, well, I'll say about seven to 11, Roblox. Roblox is this game that has a bunch of little games in it, right? Mm -hmm. And I will be connected with a kid just like this on the screen, and then we'll be connected playing Roblox together. And it's, it's amazing to see the different things that come out of it and the ways that we can still connect. Like there's a Sims kind of version of a game called Blocksburg. And so the kids have their own houses and they've picked me up in their car from their house, from my house to come to their house to show me around and what they've done. And, oh, I'm a more modern stylist. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's so cute to see these things. And they're like, sit down this April, I'll make food for you while I turn on the TV and we can still interact. Um, 
That's so then, cool. It is, it is. And it's, it's one of those things that we stay connected. They get excited to be like, let me show you what I've, I've done on my house since we last had our session. Or they don't understand that Miss April only plays Roblox when I have sessions. I don't just sit there and play Roblox. So um, it's a way that I have a little girl where she's like rebuilding my house and I go to work to give her the money to be able to decorate my house. And she's asking me what color I want my room in and all that stuff. So we've gotten really creative about the ways that we can stay connected. But then also um, with my younger kids, I've had the parents brought into the session using a lot of their play techniques. Um, shorter sessions are better for those little kids. Um, and a lot of it's just been, you know, trial and error. Um, you know, with my younger kids, I always say I start off with like a little 20 minute session with mom right in the room just in case because they're known to knock over the thing or push something. And I had a kid uh -huh. knock the ironing board down the other day on the door where mom couldn't get the door open. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> because mama can't open the door and I can't get to you so we still have those things um but again just like you find those moments to say wow you problem solved through that really well you're so strong you you know thank you for being so patient while mom came to come help you um and then the last thing I would say is worksheets have been my best friends whether it's from teachers pay teachers or mile marks things that I can send to kids in advance um, that we can pair up with any other type of drawing activity or YouTube. So it's been a lot more successful than what I realized to the point where I am only virtual with my, my clients. I do have bronchitis, so I'm trying to be mindful of those. Mm -hmm. And because I've been so successful on virtual, um, I don't need to go in office. And so it's been, I'm very grateful that we have the technology to do this. Um, if this happened 10 years ago, a lot of us that unemployment rate would be a lot higher, I'll tell you that much. Oh my God, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The technology, I, I was thinking that from the beginning and like going into the immediate transition of like, wow, I'm so fortunate um, to be doing this now. I remember when I first started, um, it, my cell phone, the only fancy feature it did was text. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> I when we couldn't text, I got excited when we could. I was, oh, you can, yeah, I can talk yeah. Talking to them, that's amazing. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> so, so we we definitely have a lot more resources at our fingertips than than we did then. It's just a matter of finding out what are the other interactive. Um, options and resources that are out there that go beyond just the video. And you had mentioned a couple things that I, I want to ask a little bit further about just in case listeners aren't familiar with some of the things that you mentioned. One was fair play. And so I feel like folks that are very, um, involved in the play therapy community might understand what their play is, but for people that are coming at it from a different modality or are listening and they, their approach is music therapy or dance therapy or something, um, they might not be as familiar. Can you explain how that particular approach differs a little bit from traditional? Yeah. So TheraPlay comes from an attachment-based um, theory. And so it really is about making those connections between the child and caregiver. 
it's really, really great for young kids and they do have adaptations for older kids. So it's not like things that you can only do it with like that preschool age. Um, there's several things that I enjoy about it. One is it integrates, you know, for those that are our clinicians that are out there, um, it's not, you know, especially play therapy, it's not cheap. You know, the things that we have mm -hmm. to purchase and art therapy and all this stuff, right? And a lot of times if our families don't have the means, it's a little difficult for them to be able to continue the work outside of sessions, which I feel is so powerful and needed. And so um, TheraPlay actually uses either nothing or like just materials that are either low cost or you would have around your house. So baby powder and cotton balls and bubbles. And um, they start each session with like, a fun way of the family and the child coming into the session. Maybe the child's standing on the, the parent's feet as they walk them in. Um, we do something every session called checking for hurts. We use lotion and the child lets the caregiver know if they have any hurts and they put lotion on them and help take care of them. And then the games are really interactive and just different things that you can do. Um, TheraPlay Institute, I believe the website's just theraplay.com. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I should know that but they do have an online booklet for um, actual telehealth that you can purchase mm. that I bought that I use with my kids. And the music therapist will love it because there's a bunch of singing and all there's slides about what songs you can use and all that stuff, but it's so fun. Like we do things like um, uh, bubble pop with your body parts. You always start where the child follows the kids, the, the parents lead and then I let the kid then take the lead. But we pick a body part and we blow bubbles and the child has to pop the bubbles with that body part or um, you do handprints with lotion that you put lotion on their hands and you put it on a construction paper and then you sprinkle baby powder on there and there's just things that are just really about attunement and connecting with the kid that are really good especially for children that have had trauma um, and have those attachment issues due to that traumatic event. Mm, yeah so uh, repairing repairing the attachment and connecting and establishing yes. safety. Hey, are you ready to gain clarity for your vision and draft actionable steps to achieve the outcomes you desire for your practice? We at the Creative Clinicians Corner are now offering professional consultation services that help creative therapists organize the ideas spinning in their minds into a strategic map to launch and scale their private practices. So you can breathe with ease and confidence and take the action you need to achieve the practice of your dreams. Nothing is insurmountable and knowing your path to success will only inspire you to push through all the roadblocks and you don't have to do it alone. Visit us at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com and see the really affordable packages we have for you right now. The ones that, um, there's a lot of activities. There's a whole book, there's a certification. I believe they do the certification up in Chicago. Um, they're probably virtual now because that's the life we're living in. Um, but there are a lot of even activities that are outside the telehealth version that they do that are just really good. I, I worked with a child I used to run a therapeutic preschool um, here in St. Louis and I had a child with just extreme attachment issues. And some of the things I did with her was um, swaddling her in a blanket and feeding mm. her snack because that's something that she didn't receive in infancy. And for those that don't, you know, know what you're doing, you're like, why are you holding this five-year-old wrapped in a blanket? 
feeding them. But when you think about the basic of the, the, the structure of that child's brain, what she didn't receive in those early years is what she has to receive first in order for us to build up her brain the way we need to, you know, reconnect mm -hmm. those um, connections that got disrupted. Mm, that's so cool. Very yeah, cool. it's a fun, you know, I love what I do. You know, sometimes I'm like, I am popping bubbles with my elbow and I'm having a great time, but stress release for me too. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it definitely is. Um, it's fun. It's fun to play and we all should be playing. I hate to use the word should, but I, I think even in adulthood, it's important for us to continue to play. And that's something that I, I think a lot of people that experience um, certain symptoms, like depressive symptoms, right, where they've stopped, they've stopped playing in their lives. And, um, and that, that in itself, just engaging in playful activities can spark tiny moments of joy that, you know, we reconnect to that, that inner child that still exists within us. Yeah. No, you're right. And, and that's why, you know, the BMH Connect is really focused on engaging caregivers because um, intergenerational trauma that's passed down and there, you know, again, the, that mental health stigma, the, the lack of mental health access, the lack of mental health knowledge to even know that you are in need of talking to someone and then knowing where to go and all that stuff. Um, there's a lot of caregivers that haven't healed from their own. And so it's kind of like my roundabout way of helping them address too. Um, I have a, a caregiver program called Heritage Connection, and it's a 12-week program based on engaging caregivers to connect with their children and go back and do play-based things that'll help, again, give them coping skills, but then the parents are able to heal themselves from things that they've been dealt with simply because of the color of their skin and where they've been born. Wow, that's amazing. And it is that program only for people that are in the St. Louis area, or is that something that is open for anyone, no matter where they are? Yeah, it's going to be open for everyone. Um, it's going to be a virtual program. Um, I'm looking at a tentative pilot in, in January, but at the same time, um, this is a capstone project for my doctoral program. And so things keep iterating, right? So things keep changing, which is a good thing um, that I believe that I wanna put out a quality product and not rush something. So I know in 2021, um, I'll have some pilot programs done, okay. um, but it's for any caregiver. I, you'll notice I use the word caregiver a lot, right? Because mm -hmm. one, you can't just assume that a biological parent is the one that's taking care of a kid. Um, but also, again, in the Black community, we, we have an African proverb of it takes a village um, to raise a child. And I don't have any biological children of my own, but any child that I come across, mm -hmm. um, I take ownership of as understanding an adult in the society, right? So whether it's a kid that I notice in the store is lost, I, I feel the responsibility to help that child. Of course. Um, those type of things, right? So we're all influential in the ways that we touch a child. There are a lot of children, especially those from low-income um, areas and communities that, you know, for whatever reasons, whether systemic racism, institutionalized, systemic things that have happened where 
you may have a caregiver that's working three or four jobs. And it's not that mm-hmm. that caregiver doesn't want to be there and connect, but when you're only getting paid $9 an hour and you need food on the table and groceries are going up, all mm-hmm. of those things, then us as professionals then become that connection for children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the caregiver, when we talk about caregiver, it's for any person that is raising a black child in America this is for adoptive parents. This is for children that are in biracial families because it's not that I'm only trying to teach black parents. I'm trying to raise um, amazing, strong, empowered black children in America. And anyone that has one a child living in their house, come on down, we can help you because these things are hard, right? Mm-hmm. But then also, of course, there's something else. It's something called heritage ambassadors. It's like a train the trainer. Where Raina, you can get trained to be able to implement the heritage connection program in your community as well, too. So although we'll have virtual, I'm also training ambassadors to be able to go into their communities. It can be someone that's at a church that wants to do this or someone that is a Girl Scout leader and wants to do this. And so the, the full goal is to be able to teach everyone how to fish. I love it. I love Thank it. You. Yeah. Well, there, there's a proverb that goes with that too, right? Yes, <laughs> About the yes. fishing. <laughs> the fish, right? Like it's one of those things of, Hey, yes, I, I, you know, I love working with kids on that clinical level, but I do recognize a gift more in that macro. And it's like I tell the caregivers that I work with, like the information can't stop with me. And so everything, it's hard for me to hold back what I know, whether it's I'm talking about TheraPlay, I'm advertising for them, not because I get money for it, but because if you know about it, then you can go implement it and you can help kids with it. And so that's what it's all about, man. It's just helping these little babies. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's great work that you're doing. And um, I, one of the things that I love about um, being in private practice, right, as a, as a business owner, as a therapist, you know, we go to school to become a therapist, but then once we're in the system, we realize there's so many, there's only so many ways we can push within the system in order to serve on that more macro level. Sometimes it takes getting out of the system so that we can create these pathways of sharing the knowledge that maybe weren't available within kind of the traditional mental health system. Yeah. I personally think our whole mental health system needs a revamp <laughs> um, just mm-hmm. because for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, but I, I think revamping the system would help reduce some of the stigma that you're talking about that prevents people from accessing care. We certainly have a lot of work to do in that area, but, you know, it sounds like you too have that same sensibility of having your own business to be able to, um, or creating multiple businesses really to be able to serve in the way that you're called to serve and, um, and reach more people that way. Yeah. Well, what I I found in my work is, you know, for the longest, it was this, um, you know, kind of, I guess, understanding um, that there was the stigma. I mean, there's still a stigma in the black community, but I think it's shifted for sure in the sense of, 
social media and all its ups and downs, one of the benefits is I believe that it's been very helpful in kind of destigmatizing mental health. Um, you know, people like Michelle Obama coming out and saying that she struggles with depression. Yes. Or um, it's a TV show that um, black people, black kids, uh, black people, black women and um, men my age love called Insecure. And one of the characters, he struggles with bipolar disorder and just the ways that we've been able to actually integrate it more and to be more aware of it. What I found that got me really frustrated is um, just that confusion of next step. Like, okay, now I know that I need to talk to someone, but where do I find someone? Mm -hmm. uh, does that person take my insurance? You know, the thing is, is that, you know, I've been in therapy, I'm in therapy myself. It took about four or five clinicians for me to find the right fit. Yeah. Um, and to stick with it. I, I was getting frustrated myself. Like I'm trained in this and I'm like, huh. Oh. <laughs> so I can only imagine how it is for someone that doesn't have our background in training, right? Yeah. Um, but then also, and that's panel is that I'll be bringing to at the summit is, you know, how to then, um, you know, people that aren't clinicians of color, how do you guys then connect with people of color in order to give them the best quality of services in a way that they feel heard. And, yeah. you know, research shows like it's not that black people only want black therapists, they want someone that's competent. But if you mm -hmm. aren't mindful of the words that you're bringing and the energy that you're bringing, um, prior to, um, I think his name was Ahmad, please forgive me, I'm forgetting it. Unfortunately, there's so many names that come up of whether people being shot or being mm -hmm. called police on. Um, there was a African-American man that was jogging and um, I believe that he either got the police called on him or he was harmed. And um, what Are I'm getting to Are you talking about the gentleman in New York City? How... Is it the gentleman in New York City in Central Park? And he, yes. he was telling the lady that, excuse me, ma'am, please put your dog on your, on the leash because the dog was like aggressively barking at him. <laughs> Actually, Raina, this is a different person. A different person. <laughs> Unfortunately. <Okay. laughs> yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, right? And that's the sad thing, right? It's like the names kind of start to to go together um ahmad arbery that's who it was 25 year old black man um he was running and three white white guys they thought that he was like committing a crime oh, yes, and so yes. they they shot and killed him right and so what i'm getting to Raina, is i was talking to my therapist about how i don't feel comfortable just walking i was living in a very affluent neighborhood at that time and I said, I don't feel comfortable just walking outside unless I have a dog with me. Like I'll walk to a park. I don't have like agoraphobia. And um, I said, you know, I just know sometimes people think that you don't belong. And her response was, no, I don't think people believe that. And that just immediately shut me down. And I was just like, okay. And she could tell it bothered me. And I just went into my clinical skills of yes i hear you yes i hear you but i'm not paying money to be a therapist right now <laughs> like i need a therapist so i know i'm seeing your face Raina, but oh. i do believe that she didn't even understand the impact of what she said yeah. and so those things that when we talk about how do non-people of color work with communities of color it's really being mindful of 
although you may not agree, or may, although you may not know that experience, it is our ethical duty to be non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. It is our ethical duty to ask questions and figure out what the core of what's going on with that client to be able to help them. Because mm -hmm. again, it wasn't a social issue. I'm not scared of white people, but right. when I see what happens to people that look like me, yeah. I am mindful of the neighborhoods and the places that I am. Absolutely. And if you don't understand that, you don't need to be you probably don't even need to be in this field. Not You don't need to be working with Black people because it just immediately shut me down. And so us as clinicians, we just have to be mindful of that. If it's something you don't know, ask the client, you know? And just because I'm Black doesn't mean that my experience is the same for every client of color that I work with, right? That's and right. So, you know, there's some kids where race doesn't really even come up. I have a child that's biracial that I work with and she's... Um, she lives with her grandparents who are white. And so race has never come up in our conversations. Wow. So I don't bring it up because mm -hmm. that hasn't been something that she feels she needs to talk about or it is impacting her life. However, I have other kids where we do talk a, a lot about it and we do talk about, well, honey, you are a black child in America. And unfortunately, I hear you when you say you weren't the only one doing it and you were the one that was called out. I hear you. How does that make you feel? Unfortunately, again, and this is that work of what I'm doing in my capstone of how do we process that yeah. and then empower our kids to use their voice in a way that they can be heard. So if the teacher did something, how do you then handle that in a way that is it you get an attitude that you get kicked out and now you're in detention and now nobody's going to hear you because all they're going to see is what you did. And you already have a target on your back simply because you're a black child and you're seen more aggressive and you're seen louder and you're seen more as like the angry black child when really Honestly, you got a lot to be angry about. It's stressful right. to be black in America. So, you know, I get it, boo. But how do we do this in a way because you're going to come up against this so much more as you continue to grow into an adult that we can't change the way that society sees us or society treats us individually. But what are ways that we process it to where it doesn't become a racial traumatic thing that then I'm self-harming or I'm committing acts of suicide because of that. That's right. really important to me is how do we preserve the psychological well-being of Black children due to what's being put on them that's not their fault. Yeah. Sorry, I get, mm. I get on rant. I get it's excited. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I think it, this this is why the work that you're doing is so important. And um, these are important conversations that all of us need to have. And I think, you know, as part of our training in graduate school, you know, we take a class, a class, one class. And in that one class, it tries to break down all the systemic um, issues of marginalization and oppression. But in that one class, to try and break down all those different iterations of it, you can't fully address a single one. And, you know, you might pay some attention to it in some of the other classes, but I don't believe that we as clinicians receive enough education in that area in our training. And especially yeah, just... Yeah, I definitely agree. 
statistically, um, in, in terms of like clinicians, when you go to a conference, um, the majority of the people that you see are white women, right? And so we do need more training, guidance, and education in these areas to prompt us to evaluate our position of privilege and really look at, okay, well, what is my experience and, and the lens that I'm looking through so that we don't invalidate people in the way that you were invalidated in your experience. And unfortunately, yeah. I think it happens a lot. It does. But the also understanding that it's like an ongoing, like it's lifelong learning, right? Mm -hmm. So I joke because um, my business partner with the Play Therapy Institute, she's white. And she said, every time she's with me, her privilege gets pointed out. But it's, it's so real because like, we were at a restaurant and she, don't ask me why, but she was bringing me a bat. She walked in smiling, bringing this bat and we're in a restaurant where I'm the only black person in there. And I'm like, Sarah, well, first of all, let's acknowledge the fact that I wouldn't have even probably been able to walk in here with just a bat and a smile. Two, why are you handing this to me? I'm the only black person in the restaurant. <laughs> like now I look suspect. And she's like, oh, my privilege. I'm like, yes, girl, yes. <laughs> Seriously, as soon as I said that, the table behind me, this girl was like, she has a bat. And I was like, now I feel uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Just the oh. smallest things where, again, there's no malicious intent, but just no. understanding that you always have to have that lens on because, you know, clinicians that aren't Black or people that aren't Black or people that aren't uh, Brown, you know, you you don't know that you have that privilege lens on, right? So mm -hmm. it's just one of those things of just being open to understanding like what, what are my biases and understanding that because I have a bias doesn't mean that I'm racist. Like mm -hmm. I'm more biased towards black people because they look like me and I feel more comfortable around them. I don't feel as anxious around people that don't look like me. And again, that's because of the history and because of things I'm able to see the ways that people look like me are treated. And so that doesn't mean that I don't like white people, but it just means that I have more of a bias towards black people, or I have a bias towards little girls when I'm playing with them. They're just super cute. Doesn't mean I don't like hanging out with my boys. They just got a lot more energy. But you know what I mean? Like there's reasons why, but I have to be mindful of that I treat the little boy the same way I treat the little girl. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't acknowledge my bias existed. And that's what it comes down to. Yeah. And so in, in your work in uh, BMH Connect, mm -hmm. are you going to be creating trainings that um, help other clinicians work through some of these, um, I don't wanna say issues, but um, just realities that yes. hey, the, this is this is a truth for all of us, um, whether we want to acknowledge that truth or not. Um, but in order for us to do better, we have to start by acknowledging the truth, so we can learn different ways of interacting. Um, yeah. yeah. So are are you yeah. going to be addressing that? Yeah. So on BMH, it's 
it's a one-stop shop. It's got everything you can think of. If I thought about it, it's probably on there in the sense of um, the tagline is education, connection, and empowerment, right? So for the caregivers, we have resources, but also, you know, mental health professionals, documentaries that you can watch. One of my favorite ones that I always tell people about, like the hair journey in the Black community is called Good Hair. It's by Chris Rock. It's the reason why I went natural myself after I saw, you know, the, the acidic chemicals that we're putting in our hair to make our hair straight because standards of beauty are based off of European standards. Um, but then also we have to look at what hair discrimination looks like at the same time too, that I also- um, That is a likely, huge thing, huge. Oh yeah, I, oh yeah, yeah. So we have the education part where we have the resources, screening where caregivers can go on there and screen if their kids are screening for anxiety. We've partnered with Goal Driven Counseling, where we're going to provide telehealth as well, too, that if they want to connect with their kids that um, for therapy, they can do that. And then we have the Heritage Connection, which I talked to about the caregiver program. So um, we have one area called BMH Play Connect, and that's going to be where all our play-based things are. Mm -hmm. um, digital downloads and activities that both caregivers and mental health professionals can use in sessions, um, specifically around topics that affect Black children. So hair discrimination, um, hair pride, pride in our skin color, those type of things. Mm -hmm. um, but then I will also have webinars. So um, it's flip-flopped, which is why the pilots pushed, because what I'm thinking is to release the webinars and the digital downloads first and then use that to build off of the program. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, good night, yes. So that's where my brain is. So like, <laughs> um, I am the process very, very close of closing a partnership with someone that it's looking really good that that's what we're gonna do. Um, so yeah, the webinars are going to be on a lot of the topics that will be covered in the Heritage Connection because the Heritage Connection program is for caregivers of kids five to 12 but teens still need help, right? And I say mm -hmm. young adults too, if you're, you're on your mom's insurance, you're still a kid. So if somebody can claim you as a benefit, <laughs> you know, on their taxes, then you're still a child to me. Um, and so the um, webinars will help achieve that too. So I have an amazing colleague here in St. Louis, um, Rafaela, she's a sex therapist, and we're gonna do a webinar on how do we teach um, sexual um identity and how do we address like teaching black mm -hmm. children about sex without like this whole stigma goal that makes them fast for things like that but then addressing yeah. how black seen is more promiscuous in the history of all of that and so the webinars will achieve those those topics specifically that both caregivers and clinicians can access but the more I'm talking with people, the more I know I need to put together something specifically on like, I don't know, identifying bias in ways that you can still connect with, you know, communities of color. So it's going on my list now, Raina. Thank you. <laughs> I'll put it together for you, just for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, cause I know it's needed. No, every time is. I do, I do this trauma training and I do another one called disrupting the preschool to prison pipeline. Um, when I first went into the doctoral program, that was my area of expertise and I kind of switched to all around racial trauma. And every time I do this, whether I've done it at the Expressive Summit in DC and um, locally, um, 
I get clinicians that are like, I'm an ally, but I don't know how to connect. I don't know mm-hmm. how to say in a, in a session, well, um, you know, they probably kicked you out because of your hair or like those type of things. And I'm like, you know, the first thing is black people, we, <laughs> my kids all the time, if they don't like somebody, it's because she fake and she do too much. <laughs> Yeah, nobody likes a fake person. No, and that's something where I'm telling you, it's just in our community, we don't like fake people. If you come right in, Rain, and say, hey, April, I'm your clinician. I know that the Black experience is something that I don't understand, but I'm here to support you. And if there's any times that I maybe say something that rubs you, and just even saying that, you know what I mean? Like intention. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also just trying to be overly, like, you don't, I don't know everything about black culture. I don't know how to double, I don't know how to, um, double double Dutch. Dutch. I don't know how to double Dutch. (laughs) I can't French, I can put braids in, but I can't flat braid my hair. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's things that, you know, you can still learn, even if you're a clinician of color too, of again, just walking in and understanding that ethically, that's what we're supposed to do anyways, is that the client knows they're the expert of their own story. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter really when we're looking at what their race or ethnicity is, or sexual orientation or their ability or disability, whatever puts them in kind of that category of a minority, they are the ones that are their experts of their story. So just have a listening ear, let them know if something's going over your head, let them know if you're like, hey, I need to learn more. Because mm-hmm. it can be detrimental. I had a, a, a therapist that worked for me before that wanted to hotline a mom because she was gluing weave in the girl's hair. I know, Raina, the things that I hear and see, though, you don't understand. I wish the viewers could see your face. <laughs> <laughs> because, yes, that was my first thing, right? But I was oh her supervisor. God. So the first thing is, you know, tell me more about why you would like to hotline. You know, I can't tell you not to. Um, but I told her to go watch Good Hair. And I said, if you don't understand the history and why Black people feel the need to do those things to their children's hair, it's not out of harm. It's Mm -hmm. because white people have been telling us that we're not good enough ever since we've been brought over here against our will. We've been told that our hair is kinky and nasty and dirty. And we got people that touch our hair without permission and, you know, I don't feel comfortable wearing purple hair because it makes me feel unprofessional, but you know, Jane can sit in this meeting and have this purple hair and it's not an issue. Um, if you don't understand that, you making that hotline, mm-hmm. that parent's not harming their child. Their parent is trying to set their child up for success based off of what society has placed on us. Yeah. So again, just, it's detrimental. Thinking about the damage of you know, the, the trust with the individual, but the trust with the larger system. It's a, it's yep. a further, you know, re, re-traumatizing interaction. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, early. I, like, I get it, she is tearing up that baby's hair. She's young though, like the mom was like 20. And I said, you know, do you think she's doing it to harm this child or because this little girl was, she's a little diva like Miss April. She liked getting dressed up for certain occasions and all that stuff, that's not harming her child. But if you don't know that in the black community, we have something called hot combs and it is a comb that is made out of cast iron skillet material, it's cast iron. You put it on the stove and you hold your hair down and it sizzle, it's smoke that comes out of your hair. 
and the perms that we put in our hair that it's acid and it leaves scabs in our hair if you don't understand that history and again you're making a hotline it shows your ignorance and your lack of willingness to learn about the community that you're working with i'm not an expert on the latinx community but i'm damn sure if i had some clients that came from that community i'm gonna learn and mm -hmm. we should do the same too and it starts with the history i don't know how many times i've done these trainings and um people love them and i get those few they're like we spent too much time on the data and the history and it's like you know we say never forget 9 11 we say never forget the holocaust but we just want to scave over what is has been done to black people and continues to be mm. continues to be done and that's one of my most frustrating thing because it's like if you don't understand all these things you won't understand why she's gluing hair in that baby's head so all the play therapy mm -hmm. activities i can tell you if you don't have the rapport what's it gonna do yeah yeah i want to play too but baby we got to learn too we have to learn why behaviors are done there's an amazing book called post-traumatic slave syndrome oh she's girl. amazing isn't she yeah. oh i Brand saw her girl. yes she is such a great speaker yes she was she was a keynote speaker at the american art therapy association conference a couple years ago in miami dr mm -hmm. joy degroy um yep. wrote that book mm -hmm. and yes she just an amazing speaker and yeah like i at the end of that presentation i was just in a puddle yeah uh, she was so good and the information yeah. was so incredibly helpful um reading her book is really what brought it full full circle so i was working at that therapeutics preschool during ferguson um you know this work isn't coming out of things that are happening right now it's seeing a five-year-old give a police officer fake name without blinking because that's his his trauma response um because we had a, a student bring police officers in and, and he didn't blink he just gave him a fake name he's like can i give you a high five he was like nah you good bruh five years old um but that's the same kid that then i had to fight certain systems here because they were trying to arrest him in the state of missouri if a child gets in a fight no matter what age they are um anywhere on school property they can be charged with a felony shut and so, dead serious girl um and so this little kid we had um we i helped grandmas for him to get screened for you know through special ed to get a an idp an individual education plan mm -hmm. the school district didn't screen him because they said oh we know that family that's a trouble family blah 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 by law you're supposed to so oh trust me they had to put they had me so <laughs> by the time we were done no uh, the child did not get arrested because I was about to make some noise. You didn't do your job because of whatever preconceived notion you've had about this child's history. And now he did what I told you he was gonna do. I told you he was gonna punch somebody, now he did. We're not arresting mm -hmm. a five-year-old unless you want the news on your front lawn because that's what's about to happen. <laughs> um, and so my work from Ferguson and seeing kids, um, I mean, that little boy, he just sticks out in my mind so much, Raina, because, um, after Mike Brown, every every he was fat, he was everything was about Mike Brown. We had a mm -hmm. our van driver died suddenly at that time, and we did a feelings heart activity. And he said, Ms. April, can I color my heart for Mike Brown? Um, he mm -hmm. lived in the neighborhood right behind 
the apartment complex, um, Canfield. So he was exposed. He heard the all the riots, sure. all the riots, the the tear gas, police off, you know, um, yeah, police in army tanks. Like that was his reality. Him and his brother. Yeah. Um, but we saw a makeshift um, memorial, like with balloons and teddy bears. I was riding on the van, and he said, "Miss April." He said, um, did a boy die there? And I said, yeah. And he said, did the police shoot him? And I said, yeah. And he said, was that Mike Brown's brother? <sighs> I said, no. He said, okay. And he just popped his fingers in his mouth. Um, as a clinician, I knew just to give straight answers, you know, that type of thing. Spent the rest of the day with him just like if he had anything else that came up. But, you know, as young as five years old, understanding and exposed that. Um, these children are really hurting and they're exposed to things that again if we don't have that historical context mm -hmm. we'll write it off as when they say the police don't keep you safe then oh no they keep you safe no not for every child especially some i've, I've worked with kids that have been in a home where a search warrant was served so guess what in their reality the police didn't keep them safe in that situation so i feel like i'm going on a tangent what i'm trying to get to is um there's these historical things that we have to then connect when Dr. Joy DeGray, her book brought that full circle when mm -hmm. I would kind of watch some of the parenting practices and be confused, whether it's things I experienced in my own family, like, why are we so rough? Why do we gotta be so negative? And it really comes to this norm that black children need tough love in order to survive, you know, being a black child. And my goal is to use play, not tough love, because, um, you know, in her book, she talked about these protective factors that have now then become negative ones. So mm -hmm. a black mother that spoke negatively about her child in slavery was to protect them from being sold. But if we don't understand that we speak very negatively and don't realize the impact of our children, if they mm -hmm. don't know that they're loved, if they don't know that they're supported, again, that psychological effect can then lead to suicide. So I'm really sorry if that was like a tangent. <laughs> Oh no, that's okay. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you're, you're putting it all together in terms of serving the bigger picture to the, the listener audience to make sense of what it is that you do, why it is that you do the work that you're doing and how you're doing the work that you're doing. And it's really a beautiful illustration. Um, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I can't tell, like, I'm like, I know it's connecting, but is it, is it <laughs> squirrel? <laughs> and, and I'll put, I'll put in the show notes, the, the, uh, reference to her book because awesome. yeah, her work is amazing. And if people haven't been exposed or don't know who she is, um, they should definitely check her out. It, it's definitely a great resource to, understand the history and um and to look at how it's manifested socially and not just like our um personal familial interactions but in in larger society in you know political in architectural in just what it is to live in america um she yeah. highlights all of those things. It's a really excellent, um, excellent resource. 
And she does have a short YouTube clip. I can email it to you, Raina, to throw oh. in there as well. Yeah. Um, but I do share in my, in my trainings just because it's a nice little, I think it's like six minutes, little short clippy clip that can give people, you know, a little appetizer. And I've watched people's faces when I do this, when I show this video and they're just like, oh my goodness, because she illustrates it so beautifully that in a way that I didn't connect that allowed for me to take my work a lot further of, yeah, we really do have to help um, Black parents specifically understand the history of the way that, that they parent, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not that it's a bad thing. We only know what we know. We only know what we've been taught. Um, mm -hmm. So how do we unlearn those in a more positive way that also isn't saying that what you're doing is wrong, but yeah. what we could do with play and the ways that we can connect with our kids, um, giving a space for black boys to play with dolls and black boys to cry and given a space of, I don't mind if black girls shake their butts and in, 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 um, when we're doing our dances or whatever, because that goes back to our African heritage. And, right. you know, I wish I could right. do it in my dissertation on twerking because, you know, it all came from Africa. <laughs> yeah, traditional now, African can dance. Twerk everywhere, no, this is the same thing. Like, you know, I curse, but I don't curse in sessions, right? So, um, yeah, it's just all these things that we can help Black parents understand why we do what we do. And then just again, how we can unlearn them in a way that is still positive. Because at least in my experience, you know, the caregivers I've come across, they want this information, but they don't have anywhere to go, which is why I created what I created. Because they're like, they want resources. They want mm -hmm. something to read. They want something to do. I don't know how many times I have friends calling me about stuff with their kids of trying to navigate because usually their kids are older now and going into school and they're getting, you know, pre-COVID, they were getting called to the school. And it always was, I say, you don't even have to tell me, Trey got in trouble for talking, huh? Like, I already know mm -hmm. what it is. And guess what? Trey's advanced. So how about they give him extra homework or my nephew's 13, extremely smart. I tell him he will be smarter than me one day. Today's not the day yet. We haven't reached that day yet. Um, but his school was great in the sense of they allowed for him to walk around and help other kids with his homework because they just realized, yeah, I'm like, if they're sitting there talking. That's and awesome. Like, Why do you think they're like, they're bored. You need to give them mm -hmm. something to do rather than, but mm -hmm. I've been that kid. I was, I'm born and raised Scott Air Force Base. Um, I'm from O'Fallon, Illinois, only black cheerleader. Um, and I tell people all the time, like, I remember I was a problem child. I get it. I had a, I had a smart mouth. <laughs> you were smart. I you under, smart. you yeah. understood things and you and were, you were going to yes. let people know. And I always have had the thing ever since I was a kid of just because you have a certain title doesn't mean that you get to treat me less than a human being. Like just because yes. you're an adult doesn't mean you get to treat me like I'm not a human being. So that was a lot of issues like. No, I'm a human. You can talk to me like I'm a human. But what I'm getting to, Raina, is one time in gym class, I was talking with a white peer and I shouldn't, well, she was talking. We were sitting down. The teacher was leading the whatever and Brooke was talking and the teacher said, April, be quiet. And I said, I'm not talking. And she said, but you're listening. Again, girl, we have to understand then the things that our kids are dealing with and then you wonder why they're Whoa. upset at school or they don't get along or those things because I had my Spanish teacher some days I would come in and I had her last hour and she'd be like I have a headache I can't deal with you just go ahead and go to the office and I'm like so it's your job to teach me like just because you have a headache 
doesn't mean that you don't want to do it. Okay. But then again, what does that do to, I'm a child of a social worker. I'm a child of a two parent, middle class, upper middle class family. So I had the supports emotionally Mm -hmm. um, and I had the parents to go up to the school. Like, you know, I still got in trouble for the things that I did, but they advocated for me. Mm -hmm. And we have so many kids that either parents don't know how to advocate because of their own histories. I just shared my experiences. Mm -hmm. If I haven't moved past that or addressed that and I have kids, I may be bringing that into my interactions then in the ways that I engage with school officials. Um, But then also just the frustration, you know what I mean? Like black kids, we're just different. You know, we talk different, we act different, our swag's different. And, um, you know, there's things like positive behavior intervention support Mm-hmm. which I haven't dug really into it, but the one thing I don't like is that it teaches appropriate behavior. Like, who are we to define what good behavior is? You know what I mean? Like, good looks different from Black kids. And for my Black clients, I don't know how many times I've tried the, hey, Raina, will you stand up? Raina, it's time to go. <laughs> and I guarantee every time I say, Raina, let's go. Raina gets up and go. It's just a different way. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they're being defiant. They just react different and again, it's just things yeah. that we know, so it's not misconstrued and then punished. I think, you know, it's just our conversation today is making me think a lot about the work that I've done um, with clients who are in foster care. And then with, um, even as a supervisor, supervising other therapists who are caring, you know, caring for, treating kids in foster care and how much of what you're saying is it just impacts them so so much Mm -hmm. um because oftentimes they're displaced into um a community that they're not familiar with and and those folks as well-meaning as they may be Mm -hmm as well-meaning as they may be, are further stigmatizing because they don't understand what that child's experience is and their expression of their experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then that understanding how to then direct the parent, because, and again, it goes back to teaching, right? You only know what you know. And mm-hmm. if, if mental health professionals aren't given a deeper dive into those ways, those cultural nuances and the ways to connect, then you guys are left at a disservice, right? You can only mm-hmm. do with what you have, which is why I need to create that thing, right? To be yes. able to feel, hey, I have a business minor. If there's a market for it, what ways can we help people again, just understand my little babies? Because yeah, the, you've been taught to get down on their level and use this voice. And I'm telling you, I've done it. And, and, and I've gotten um, bad feedback on when I was a manager about like, you know, April uses slang with the kids and, and, and it said in there, we're supposed to teach them the correct way to talk. And I said, who are you to say what the correct way to talk is? Like, yes, my mom always says bad grammar is a bad habit. I'm a doctoral level student with a 4.0, but I still talk like this sometimes and say, I'd be going to the store because that's the way we talk, right? Doesn't mean that I don't know how to quote unquote talk right. you know right way but that's the way that we connect like mm-hmm. it's the relationship yeah I had a session with a five-year-old virtually last week and we kept we were, tra- we were doing the voice she's mom's in PCIT she's like April this PCIT stuff and I'm like 
stick with it. There's some elements, you know, that are still good that we'll, you know, work with. And it took for me to say, hey, get it together and let's go. And he said, okay. <laughs> and then we had an amazing <laughs> session. And I said, mama, you saw I tried the voice. <laughs> but it just doesn't work. And so, yeah, and I mean, and, and maybe that's a thing to kind of point out to Raina is, you know, as clinicians, don't beat yourself up you know, because you don't have, there's, there's really nowhere that you can go outside of kind of these books and documentaries, mm -hmm. but at least be open to those. And again, just be open to, you know, understanding the impact of, you know, you didn't do it. Ancestors that look like you, you know, mm -hmm. it might still be, um, you know, um, negatively, you know, affected by it because of a, a child's unwillingness to connect to you because of the way that you look like the way you're skin. And so, yeah, just whatever ways. And again, it's just, hey, I don't know, tell me. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Like, teach me more about that or tell me more about what you do. And you know, there's nothing wrong with explaining, going back to hair as I'm like putting my hair in my braids. You're like, there's nothing wrong with kind of asking because you want to learn, but you feel like a science experiment. Like there's a history of black people being put in human zoos and being looked at, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. Even in our field, even in yes. our field, there was yes. a great book that I had to read as an undergrad. I highly think everybody should read it. It's called Even the Right the the Rat Was White. Did mm -hmm. you ever read that? No, I've never heard of it. It's a book that is all about this topic in psychology, going back historically, the origins of psychology, even the rat was white. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at um, using only white subjects in a variety of ways to then generalize to everybody's experience. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a little different in, in terms of maybe not being experimented on, but there are so mm -hmm. many other examples of that. And in yep in black culture and Hispanic culture where mm -hmm. people were used as human experiments mm -hmm. um, for a variety of things. But it, it puts it all into context of like, you know, how you're saying the, the correct way of, of speaking, the correct way of behaving, um, yeah. that we're all being measured to this like one white male defined definition of mm -hmm. what it is to be and yeah and then like you look at the psychological effect then of you know i i was always told that i act like and talk like a white girl right like so then when you try to then find a, a balance of being accepted in the majority right so i can be able to speak correctly in front of these you know in front of me in these workshops and stuff but at the same time being almost vilified for that way right and so yeah. It's the same thing again about the hair. Like we're told that we can't wear our hair this way, but then when we do the things to take care of it or to like, like uh, fit in, well, then you got somebody who wants to hotline you. Like you just can't win for losing. Like, mm -hmm. but yeah, those human zoos, like they were black people that were put into zoos where, where white people would come and stare at them and pet them. And this makes me think of when I did this training, uh, the racial training, and somebody mm -hmm. asked me, you know, why do black kids some of the black kids I've, I've worked with, they get mad when people look at them. And I'm like, history of zoos. And I said, white people looking at black people hasn't really worked out for us historically. When you think about slave mm -hmm. auctions, when you think about the looking and all that stuff, like it's, 
there's a history as to why we feel uncomfortable being looked at or because I was a manager at a department store before I switched to social work and I've sat in mm -hmm. the security office with the white guy that I watch him watching the black people. You know what I mean? Like this isn't just, you know, Absolutely. so then I feel uncomfortable going to Target when I get something like I went in for something. I didn't buy anything. I feel nervous walking out. Like, do y'all think I stole something? Like we just don't like being looked at. <laughs> and again, if you don't understand that, you don't understand why that kid got so angry because somebody was staring at them and had that outburst. Right. But then you also don't know how to teach that child how to recognize those things and promote safety and mm -hmm. all that stuff. So, yeah. Well, I, I'm grateful that you are taking your knowledge and your passion and creating something that is going to be beneficial for so many people, um, educators, caregivers, other therapists, and of course, all in effort to help uh, the children so that we can start to deconstruct um, this framework that we've all been living under um, for all these generations and reconstruct it in a more positive way. Yeah, yeah, that's the goal. So, <laughs> yeah, y'all help. So, you know, <laughs> get your fishing rods ready. The rods, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The rod and then the thing that you, yeah, yeah. The, the thing that you, um, the spin is a reel, right? Rods oh, and reels. Yeah. Rods and reels. Yes. Mm -hmm. Let's start fishing y'all. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So folks that attend your session at the summit, uh, better be prepared to, um, go deep because it sounds like you have a lot to share and teach on this topic. Um, and I'm sure. so excited that you shared with me and the listeners here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and glad we're able to get this scheduled and worked out. Whatever I can continue to do to, again, just be a voice for people that may feel like they don't, I, whatever I can do, just let a system know. Please reach out. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, absolutely. When you, when you get to the point where you're ready to launch um, some of the programs that you're creating right now. So in 2021, when you're ready, reach out and let me know and, and we can do another show on what it is that you've created and, um, and how, you know, other therapists can utilize the resources that you're creating either for themselves or to share with uh, caregivers and other people. Um, yeah. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Cause it, it is that like the marketing and advertising is going to be key because um, you can't create something if people don't know it exists. So um, I look forward to the summit because I always come out there <clears throat> with more understanding of what clinicians need. And so mm. even just talking with you, recognizing kind of, again, that gap of that, the knowledge gap. And so mm -hmm. thank you because you've given me more to think about in ways that I can help you guys as clinicians as well, too. So thanks. Oh, thank you. If, if, Listeners wanted to find more about you, more about the work that you do. Um, I have your website, bmhconnect.com. 
what, where else um, should they look for you on social media or um, LinkedIn? Yes, so I am on LinkedIn. Um, so it's just April like the month and Duncan like Duncan Hines. I love cake and cookies. <laughs> um, I have a social media manager because again, I just, it's, I don't even have a Facebook page. I'm one of those people. Um, so we have the handles for all the BMH social media. Ain't nothing posted, but we are gonna get it together. We're gonna be launching a social media campaign. So you can definitely connect with on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, BMH Connect, even though it's not up and running yet, it, you can actually find the handles. Um, so that'll be rock and rolling soon. Um, if you're interested in actual like play therapy, CEs type of training, then the St. Louis Play Therapy Institute would be the best one for that. Um, I'll eventually get my life together. I think after I become Dr. April, then I'll have a Dr. April Duncan website that kind of has everything. But for now, BMH Connect and STLPTI, um, those are the two websites that would awesome. allow you to reach me. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. And um, I'll definitely putting in there the documentary Good Hair and then the, the book that we talked about by Dr. Joy DeGroy. Um, if you wouldn't mind emailing me that YouTube clip, I'll include the sure. YouTube clip in there as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, this has been awesome. It's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. I agree. And thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit special series on the Creative Psychotherapy Podcast. Today, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with April Duncan. I don't know if you could hear just how passionate she is about the work that she's doing in a way that I got to see her on the screen. And so I could see her her body movements too, in addition to her voice. And she just, uh, I know like if she's speaking at a conference, she's going to be so dynamic and engaging um, that her sessions are gonna be awesome. I loved hearing from her about how she has shifted her work from uh, client focused to um, like client clinical focused to really serving on a broader macro level by creating her third company, BMH Connect, and how she is shifting how she's practicing in order to reach as many people as possible with the information. Um, to allow them to change their lives and be successful and help kids um, who really need um, a lot of support. And I am really excited for 2021 when her programs are gonna be accessible to others, especially for therapists that are really looking to enhance their development and understanding 
around privilege and around the conversation of racial injustice and racial trauma, intergenerational trauma for people of color. And um, she definitely is on her A game in terms of uh, the literature and um, creating content that sinks in with lived experiences that will give you a different perspective of how you approach the work that you're doing with clients, uh, which is really incredible. Um, I also loved what she had to say about how she's integrating telehealth into her work with uh, play therapy with clients. And I loved that she's using roadblocks. And it made me think about how the kids are creating a house and inviting her into the house on roadblocks. And of course, she has her house on roadblocks too. And it and it made me think of this idea of kind of like the virtual dollhouse, if you will, like the client is inviting you into the dollhouse that they've created, right? This imaginary digital dollhouse um, to explore and play in. And um, I just thought that was super cool. Anyway, I hope that you all enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I did speaking with her. I am for sure going to have her back on the show once um, some of her programs go live next year. Um, I, I'm just in awe of the work that she's doing and and I think that um, we all need to be aware of this type of work and and have access to it. So anyway, thanks so much again for listening and I will talk with you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.